HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit HearstRanch.com. Many people in our food community have been seriously impacted by Superstorm Sandy, and our hearts go out to them. At HRN, we've been covering these stories since the storm hit. To learn more, visit our website at www.heritageradionetwork.org. Thursday, 1 o'clock, and once again, you've tuned into the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks, and we are coming to you live from the back of Roberta's in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. And today we've got a full uh, lineup for the show. We're going to start off with um, a brief update on this recent election cycle from Mark Schlossberg, the National Organizing Director of Food and Water Watch, and then stay tuned in the second half of the show, um, where we get a little bit of an update from Severin von Tarschner Fleming, founder of the Greenhorns, uh, with regards to how that community of young farmers is thinking about and responding uh, to Superstorm Sandy. So we spoke with Mark a little bit earlier this morning, and we're going to run that clip for you now. Joe, you want to go ahead and pull that up? All right. We are here with Mark Schlossberg, National Organizing Director of Food and Water Watch. Mark, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Great to have you on. So uh, let's start with a little bit of info on what Food and Water Watch is. What, what's your mandate? Uh, food and Water Watch is a national consumer advocacy organization, and we work to keep our food safe and our water public. And uh, we do a lot of work to support uh, small and mid-sized farmers. Uh, consumers uh, have a, you know, consumers really want to have food that is grown by a diversity of uh, farms. We really want to support our family farms. Uh, want to have uh, local uh, good uh, produce and uh, and safe food. And so we work to support policies that that uh, that further that. So you guys are a national organization, and how long have you been around? Uh, we've been around for about six years, uh, seven years, and um, we have an office in D.C., but we have offices across the country, and uh, from Iowa to California, Ohio to uh, Florida, uh, we're, we're in the community working with, uh, with consumers to advocate for uh, changes in government policy that will make our food safe 
and our water, keep our water public. Great. So I wanted to bring you on the show today to kind of get a little reaction to this last election cycle. You guys were working hard on a couple of different initiatives, uh, in particular, Question 30 in Longmont, Colorado, which was a fracking um, initiative, and then uh, California's Prop 37. So maybe let's start with Colorado. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what Question 300 was and and how you guys worked to um, support that? Yeah, well, Measure 300 was placed on the ballot after signatures were gathered by uh, residents of Longmont, a community in Colorado, uh, that was concerned about fracking uh, coming into their community. And they gathered signatures and placed the measure on the ballot, which would uh, ban fracking uh, within the city of Longmont. Um, the industry, uh, oil and gas industry, spent a ton of money, uh, over half a million dollars, uh, to try and defeat this measure uh, in a town that's about uh, 90,000 people. So that money uh, is, a, is a really a ton of money to be spending in a community that size. Uh, proponents, uh, led by a group called Our Longmont uh, and supported by Food and Water Watch, uh, uh, had just a fraction of that. And uh, still the measure passed overwhelmingly 60 to 40. And I think the message to take away from this is that, um, you know, communities should have the ability to protect themselves uh, from the real threats that fracking poses to water, uh, air, uh, public health, and really the community. And when uh, people band together and, you know, talk to their neighbors and do real work of organizing and talking with people, that uh, it's a, it's a, that, that we're capable of pushing back against uh, big money uh, interests uh, that are really trying to exploit our essential resources um, without regard to, uh, to the consequences. Now, because you're in kind of a national purview, maybe you can give comment, you know, fracking is an issue uh, across the U.S. It's being done already in several parts of the country, uh, in Pennsylvania in particular, here in the Northeast. And it's a big um, issue up for debate and contention here in New York State. And I'm curious, is there something in particular about Longmont that that led this um, kind of charge to take a strong stance? Or are there lessons that you would extrapolate for other communities? Yeah, well, I mean, fracking and and drilling associated with fracking has been shown to have really significant impacts on water, air, public health, um, and the like. And so, you know, there's communities across the country that are very concerned about fracking. Um, You mentioned New York. Obviously, we're engaged in a very big fight in New York to stop fracking from coming into that state. And there's 180 groups that are part of New Yorkers Against Fracking that are working uh, to to, uh, push for a ban uh, on fracking in New York. Um, Longmont, uh, is one of many communities in Colorado that is, uh, you know, grappling with this issue of fracking. And there's uh, community groups uh, throughout Colorado that have been organizing uh, and coming together around this issue. And um, this is the first, Longmont's the first community in Colorado to pass a, a ban at the ballot. Um, but we think that's very important in, uh, you know, in asserting local control and making it uh, clear that, uh, you know, uh, that other communities in Colorado uh, should also be able to, uh, to uh, determine how they're going to control their communities and whether or not uh, they should be having fracking there and should be able to assert the right that they don't have to uh, and that, that communities can be free of fracking. And really that fracking poses such a, such a tremendous uh, risk to, uh, to these communities. And can you share uh, any uh, info with regards to the demographics of, of Longmont? 
Um, I'm not, I don't know the Longmont community that well myself. We do have an organizer who's been working there for quite a while who's from Longmont that's, uh, that really helped work on that campaign with the, uh, with the community group, our Longmont. I do know that, um, you know, is, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the people involved, uh, you know, kind of span very different, different ages, kind of come from different places in the community. And, uh, it was really a community effort. Uh, it ended up being a, uh, 60, 40, uh, win, uh, for measure 300, uh, which is really incredible given the overwhelming, uh, oil and gas money that was thrown against it. Yes, yeah, kind of a daunting. Well, c- kudos to that. And we hopefully will be celebrating similar successes uh, at communities around the country in, in election cycles to come. The other um, issue that we've been talking about here at the network is California's Prop 37, which unfortunately, um, you know, did not did not pass. Can you tell us a little bit about your efforts in, in that area and some of the challenges to that? Yeah, well, Proposition 37 uh, was a measure that would have uh, required labeling of genetically engineered foods. And it was placed on the ballot uh, after uh, California residents uh, gathered uh, over 800,000 signatures uh, to, to place it on the ballot. Um, it uh, initially had a very high uh, polling. If you ask people, do you want your food labeled, they'd say yes. Um, but it was it ended up losing uh, 47 to 53 uh, after just an incredible spending spree by big chemical and junk food companies. Um, the no side ended up spending close to 50 million dollars, uh, making deceptive arguments and really confusing voters about uh, how the measure was written and what its impacts would be. For example, they claimed that the measure would cost uh, average California 400 dollars, when in fact we know that uh, from labeling being implemented elsewhere it doesn't really cost anything. So it was a really confusing campaign. I think one of the takeaways from it, though, is that, you know, initially most Californians did not have really deep knowledge of... um, of genetic engineering and the impacts on food. And I think that, you know, something that we learn is that, you know, negative advertising can have a really big impact, especially when uh, it's on a topic that most people don't have really deep understanding about. Most people overwhelmingly want their food to be labeled. Um, but, you know, the no side was able to just spend a ton of money, about $50 million, uh, to really confuse the issue. Um, so I don't view this as all as a rejection of labeling. Uh, I think that the movement for GE labeling is stronger than ever, and there's efforts underway in about a dozen states uh, to achieve GE uh, labeling of genetically engineered foods. Uh, what I think we need to learn from this is that you know we really need to be uh, even more organized. Uh, we need to uh, do more education, and we need to. Uh, do a really strong, whenever the industry uh, makes false uh, and misleading arguments, we need to come out strong against it and uh, really speak truth to people um, and get the message out there. But, uh, you know, the campaign uh, in, in support of it uh, uh, ran a really uh, aggressive campaign. There were a lot of people out there, uh, you, know, you know, trying to spread the message. The social media campaign was phenomenal. Um, and uh, it was just a question of, uh, you know, really being dramatically outspent uh, with uh, some very confusing and misleading advertising. And can you can you share with us? I mean, were there particular uh, entities behind um, the the, the anti Prop Thirty Seven ban that really stuck out as as the main funders? Yeah, the largest contributor uh, was uh, Monsanto. Overwhelmingly, I think they spent over eight million dollars. I think they probably spent about as much as the Yes side spent uh, altogether. 
just Monsanto, but also companies like Dow, uh, some of the big, uh, uh, all the big processed food companies um, threw in uh, with the No campaign as well. It was really just a big uh, combination of, uh, you know, chemical and uh, junk food companies um, uh, bankrolling the, uh, the, the No side. And one of the one of the issues, kind of on your fact sheet uh, about G Foods, is is the impact of greenwashing. Um, and maybe you can explain a little bit about what what that is, and and what we as consumers should be looking out for with regards to that argument or rebuttal. Yeah, well, I mean, we're very concerned that you know that even companies that are promoting. Uh, you know, with some smaller brands, they have like, you know, maybe some organics or whatever, the same companies that, you know, really are, are they're part of bigger companies that are bankrolling, uh, you know, some of these efforts. And we're very concerned that there is, there is some, you know, kind of efforts to greenwash the whole issue of genetic engineering, saying that it's important for, uh, you know, feeding the, uh, the, you know, for producing more food and that it's important for our food future. It's not. Um, really, the genetic engineering is just a way to allow uh, chemical companies to, uh, you know, make, you know, to, to, to develop more herbicides and pesticides. And it's not important. It, it's not the, the future of food is not with genetic engineering. And so I think that people just need to, you know, understand that this is really an effort by companies to, uh, to greenwash their image. Um, and we need to really look at what is the impact of this. It's more pesticides and more herbicides uh, being dumped on our, on our, on our food and our crops. And so, um, we think labeling is really important. Uh, labeling is very simple. It's not even a question about is genetic engineering uh, good or bad? Is it healthy or not? It shouldn't the consumer have a right to know? Shouldn't we have a right to know what's in our food, how it's made, and where it's from? We have labeling for other things. Uh, labeling of genetically engineered food exists in uh, 60 other countries, including uh, Russia, China, India, uh, Brazil. Uh, there's no reason why these countries, why people living in these countries should know what's in their food, but people living in the United States shouldn't. And so, I mean, I'm sure you guys are going to take a moment to catch your breath, but what's next on the agenda for Food and Water Watch? Well, we, we're taking a moment to catch our breath, but we're also already on the ground uh, campaigning uh, for labeling of genetically engineered foods in many states across the country. We have organizers on the ground in Florida right now working to get a, a labeling a bill introduced in the legislature next year. Same in Illinois, in Iowa, in Minnesota, in New Mexico, uh, and elsewhere. Uh, in New Jersey, we're, all, we're working on a piece of legislation this year that's still in the legislature on uh, labeling genetically engineered foods. So this is not an issue that's going away. This is a campaign that really is, in many ways, just getting started. And, you know, it's very clear. Consumers want to know what's in their food. And what happened in California is not uh, going to be a setback at all uh, towards uh, achieving that goal. Rather, we're going to move on from this fight and, uh, you know, aggressively pursue uh, labeling laws across the country. So if people want to learn more about you, I know they can visit your website, www.foodandwaterwatch.org. What's the best way for them to get involved or support your work? 
Well, if you go to foodandwaterwatch.org, uh, you can sign up to take action on uh, various uh, issues, uh, including fracking and uh, labeling of genetically engineered foods. And then from there, you can become a member or a membership organization. So if people want to support us, that's great. Uh, we only we do not take uh, corporate or uh, government money, so the only way we exist is from uh, donations from individuals. So if people want to become a member, uh, that'd be great. You get a newsletter, uh, find out what's going on, both with Food and Water Watch in the food and water movements. Um, so that's really the best place to plug in is to start with the website, foodandwaterwatch.org. Awesome. Mark, thank you so much for joining us and congratulations uh, on your victory in Colorado. And we look forward to supporting your work um, nationally with regards to the labeling of GE foods and crops. So thanks a lot. Great. Thank you. Again, that was Mark Schlossberg, the National Organizing Director of Food and Water Watch. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be on the line with Severn von Tarschner-Fleming, founder of the Greenhorns, to get an update from the young farmer community. Stay tuned. You're listening to Kill Me in the Summertime by Dead Stars on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Life is what they say, sun erases again. Everything I'm hoping for, but I don't need you in the summertime. Ranch grass-fed beef, pasture-raised on 150,000 acres in Central California. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, free-range, sustainably produced, humane. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, the authentic flavor of the American West. We're back. You're listening to The Farm Report on the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. And we are on the line with founder of The Greenhorns, Severin von Tarschner-Fleming. Severin also has a show on the Heritage Radio Network. You can tune in to hear her weekly uh, at 1 o'clock on Tuesdays. Severin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So for folks who may not be familiar with The Greenhorns, maybe we can start by explaining a little bit about who you guys are and what type of work you do. So we're a network of young farmers. Um, we're a five-year-old nonprofit organization. We focus on the production of innovative events and media, both online media and then just like traditional movie, movies and radio. Um, but then 
Well, the radio is through you and then also through a community radio station up in the Hudson Valley. We're based in Hudson, New York, and it's really fun. Wonderful. (laughs) Well, so I'm reaching out today because I wanted to um, have a little chat with you about how you know, your community has been faring in in the wake of Superstorm Sandy. I know the impacts were, were pretty different than last year's Hurricane Irene, and I wonder if you can maybe tell us a little bit about how people have been responding and, and maybe what the difference between the this year's and last year's storm has been for the farming community. Oh, did we lose her? Sorry, I put myself on mute. Uh, Last year, the Hurricane Irene kind of, like, skipped over New York City um, and just slammed Mohawk Valley and Sakari Valley and um, growers, even in Maine and New Hampshire, were really affected. Uh, A lot of people lost their winter squash. People had to leave their CSAs off early, uh, losing the confidence of their customers, losing valuable storage crops uh, that would keep them going through the winter and, you know, having collateral damage to greenhouses and um, other equipment, uh, major flooding. And this year, it's more like you guys in the city got slammed and everybody upstate was like, oh, well, it blew. You know, there was a big wind. Um, But much, much less damage uh, to the farmers. So, you know, it's kind of, it's it's almost like we're getting a little bit of of balance. Of reprieve. Yeah, sure. I mean, I am curious, though, um, you know, one of the impacts we've been hearing from farmers whose who's maybe physical property or crops weren't hard, harmed by the storm is the loss of uh, the New York City markets. And has that been an issue you've been hearing anything about? Um, surely. I mean, the disruption of, of farm business when, you know, green market was closed for like more than a week down in the city is, is something to contend with. I think more than that is just this, the long-term psychological stress of knowing that, you know, 100-year storms are happening every, you know, every year and that when your livelihood depends on being at the market every week um, and, you know, in large part is relying on pieces of aluminum uh, that are supporting pieces of plastic with, you know, $60,000 worth of tomatoes underneath, it's hard to have peace of mind and think that, you know, it's a simple matter. So in terms of young farmers and new farmers or startup farmers who are, you know, in the beginning of the ramp up towards uh, a more kind of family, uh, family supporting scale of farming, in the beginning you're really putting everything you've got into your infrastructure and into your van and into your, uh, you know, especially greenhouse and cooling. Um, and, and then obviously tractors. And so you have, you know, even more on the line than people who've been farming for 10, 15, 30 years. Uh, and usually you don't have as much barn capacity as they have to put everything under cover. So, so uh, this, you, is the, this is the world we have to farm in, so we're going to farm in it. Yeah, I mean, that definitely you bring up a lot of um, kind of daunting challenges. I mean, has there been much discussion in the community with regards to how do you uh, both adapt or, or mitigate the impacts of, of climate change and the increased frequency of these extreme weather events? Um, well, I feel like there's a different, you know, there's a few different technologies that we can employ. Uh, one of them is the finance technology of CSA, 
and getting um, commitment ahead of time from customers who are, you know, willing to see it through with the farm and basically have an exchange of confidence that, you know, we, the farmer, will give them, you know, really good price on produce because they're basically buying in bulk ahead of time, um, and then they will stick with us, you know, high or low. Uh, another technology is in the form of latching everything down and, and, and building stuff to withstand uh, higher winds. Uh, and that's, that's just, you know, that's just a matter of straps and, 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 and um, fittings. Another technology is, um, well, I'd love to tell you about is FarmHack has got this project called FIDO, which is basically environmental sensing technology. So um, it's a little computer robot creature made out of an Arduino that lives in your greenhouse. And when the temperature gets hot or cold or when the power goes off, it sends you a text message to your, to your, to your cell phone or to your um, you know, smartphone. And so that's useful not only in case of power outages, but also, like, in the spring when, like, this March it was 80 degrees, you know, in the beginning of March. So that means that your signals are just going to fry if you don't get there in time or the ventilator shuts off or something like that. So I think that the smart use of small electronic components uh, for farmers who are managing greenhouses that they don't own or spread out across different properties or, you know, in other ways kind of straddling this issue of low capital startup phase, I think is going to become uh, increasingly necessary. Um, And I'm curious, the Farmer's Almanac is kind of this, uh, it's a, I don't know, the go-to Bible in popular culture. And I'm, I'm wondering how, how are farmers in your community getting information about the weather, looking at, uh, you know, forecasts going out. Is that a tool that people are still using, or are there other tools when, when we're thinking about weather and weather impacts? Um, yeah, the, the, there are a few different calendars that people use. People do use the um, Old Farmer's Almanac still. Um, Greenhorns is actually coming out with a new Farmer's Almanac for new farmers uh, in December 2012, so that's in a m- month and a half are coming out with that new almanac, um, which is, the subtitle is Dealing Practically with the Unknown, um, because those farmer, those predictions of the weather um, are based on past cycles, and essentially the zodiac, um, the, the zodiac predictions that are in the farmer's almanac basically are based on human historical uh, observation of when the moon is in this place and when the stars and planets are aligned like this, we usually have weather like that. Um, and so that's kind of how that calculus is performed. And another calendar that's used is um, Stella Natura, which is put out by the Pemberton Hill, uh, Camp Hill Farm Community, which is a biodynamic community in Pennsylvania. And that's based on more of a Steiner uh, approach which you have to go learn more about. It's not that easy to summarize, but again, planetary influences, you know, apogee uh, of the moon, when it's far away from the Earth, when it's rising and falling, uh, that kind of thing. And then, you know, good old uh, cooperative extension in partnership with, um, uh, not OSHA, what's it called? Oh, oh, shoot, it's the Federal uh, Oceanic... Weather advisory people. Okay. 
We'll have to look uh, that up. <laughs> it's like weather.gov, basically. And, okay. And they have, they do make farm weather. Um, they do do farm weather reports. So um, that's a good, that's a good source. Looks like people have a variety of, of tools to draw on based on kind of what fits uh, their philosophies, it sounds like. Um, so I know if folks want to find out more about the Greenhorns and the work that you do, they can visit www.thegreenhorns.net. Um, you know, you did mention the new almanac coming out in December. Are there other ways that folks should be looking to support your work or engage more with their with, with your community if they're interested in learning more about supporting young and new farmers in the U.S.? Um, yeah, that's a good that's a good question because we actually are going to be in New York City. Uh, this weekend, you're catching me driving down from the Adirondacks. Uh, on Friday, we're going to be at something called EcoHack. That's EcoHack.org. It's a meetup of um, hackers and programmers and uh, citizen scientists from around the country who are gathered in New York City for essentially like project pitches uh, on a hackathon. So that's on Friday night. Uh, and then on Saturday and Sunday, we have a Greenhorns and National Young Farmers Coalition uh, farm hack event. So farm hacks are always two days long, and their purpose is to connect farmers, engineers, and other teammates around open source tool design collaboration, meaning building tractors, modifying tractors, using electronics for things like remote sensing in your greenhouse, um, adapting old technologies, creating new technologies that are farmer-driven and whose designs are then shared online at farmhack.net. So that's a two-day meetup. There's um, a 100-person limit, and it's full, but you, if you brought a big dish of food, would not be turned away. Um, and the information is all on farmhack.net. Um, it's with Build It Green and Third Ward, um, Our Goods, Rooftop Farms, and other partners in the city, essentially saying if you're interested in thinking about resiliency and thinking about getting involved, you know, on a very practical level and on a community level with solution-making, that this would be a place to meet up with people who have projects, uh, meet up with farmers, and start thinking through um, your kind of own life. Uh, your own life's team. So that's what that is. And you're, you're invited. The next one is um, the next one's going to be in Detroit and then Davis. So this is the last one on the East Coast for a while. Awesome. Severin, thanks so much for joining us uh, and sharing some of that info. And I hope folks will make their way to your website and to some of the events that you outlined for us. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So... There it is, another episode of The Farm Report. Thanks so much for listening. As always, if you missed us live, you can find us archived on our website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. We're also available as a free podcast through iTunes or Stitcher Smart Radio. We are a member-supported organization, and if you like what you hear and want to support us, you can make a small donation on our website. And tune in next week. Thursday, 1 o'clock, for another episode of The Farm Report. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. 
You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. What's hot at the green market? You're about to find out now. It's the Grow NYC Market Update. Thanks for tuning in to the Grow NYC Market Update. We are on the line with Gene from Grow NYC, and we are excited to hear what is happening at the markets. It's been a hectic couple of weeks. Gene, how are things uh, holding up on your end? <laughs> Hi, Erin. Well, we were really happy to report that just 48 hours after the storm hit the city, our markets were able to reopen, which was pretty amazing. The farmers had gas, and they could get into the city with fresh food, which arrived just in time as stores were starting to get cleared out. So um, I was at Brooklyn Borough Hall last Thursday, which was the first day we were back open, and customers were coming in and stocking up, replenishing their refrigerators, and just really happy to see their farmers, and the farmers were happy to get back in and see their customers. So it's great that we were able to get up and running so quickly. Um, And then we realized, you know, what we're able to do is provide communities with fresh food, and so that's a terrific resource at a time like this. So by Saturday, we'd set up these donated bag sites at 13 of our markets around the city, and we were asking customers if they were able to pick up an extra bag of produce while they were doing their shopping and donate it to us, and then we would drive it to a kitchen that was making hot meals. So collectively, we got over 10,000 pounds worth of produce, which was pretty amazing. Um, And people were just really, really thrilled that there was a place that they already knew well where they could donate and help out with relief efforts right away. Um, So it's been exciting and and always great to see everyone pull together quickly. And I think that um, the food has really made a difference. And luckily, we've been able to extend Donate a Bag. Um, So if you are looking for a way to help, I can tell you that um, almost all of our green markets have reopened around the city with the exception of our Stytown Market on Sundays and the Staten Island Ferry Terminal, which is open Tuesdays and Fridays normally. Um, And so starting tomorrow, uh, we'll be able to have Donate a Bag at our 97th Street Green Market on the Upper West Side, and we'll also have it at Madison Square Park, which is our temporary relocation for Union Square, if that makes sense. Sure. So Um, just a little bit north. (laughs) It's just a few blocks north. So basically, Con Ed trucks are still staged in Union Square, and so our market has moved five blocks north to Madison Square Park. It's really nice uh, that they've let us in. And so our farmers, almost all the same farmers you'd normally see at Union Square, are in Madison Square Park. Um, And they're there, and they're ready to sell. And I was on the ground there on Monday, and people in the neighborhood were like, why aren't you here all the time? So (laughs) it's been a very warm welcome. But um, tomorrow from 8 a.m. to 12.30, if you're in the Flatiron Gramercy area or if you're a Union Square diehard, definitely make your way to Madison Square Park do your shopping, and stop by the Market Info tent and donate a bag of produce. We'll get it to a kitchen that's making hot meals for people affected by the hurricane. Um, and then as we are, we're really working as quickly as we can to find other kitchens that can accept sort of deliveries of fresh produce over the next couple of weeks. 
So I would recommend that people check out the Grow NYC blog where we'll have updates about all of our donate a bag sites. So the address is www.grownyc.org slash blog, and there's all kinds of information about where to donate a bag, and if you want to volunteer to help out with those efforts, how you can do that too. That's great. And one of the things that we've been noticing with regards to coverage of the storm is that having the kind of infrastructure and relationships in place um, with regards to redistributing food prior to the storm has been really critical to getting a quick response. And are there any particular organization that organizations that Grow NYC works with to um, use produce from farmers markets year round, not just in times of crisis like this recent storm? Yeah, absolutely. We have um, a fresh pantry program. So we have had a very long lasting relationship with City Harvest for years. And so um, they are connected with a bunch of our markets around the city and come by at the end of the day and pick up donations directly from farmers. So that effort has been continuing. City Harvest uh, their trucks, you know, got kind of flooded. They're, they're right in um, Long Island City. So they worked quickly to kind of deal with the fact that their trucks were out of commission, got rental trucks, um, and have been going around and continuing to make their own pickups. Uh, so what we're doing is sort of in addition to that. Um, but also on our website is a list of other pantries that we work with year-round, too. So, for instance, uh, the Maspia Pantry that's been supplying the food for the armory in Park Slope um, has always been picking up from Brooklyn Borough Hall and, and continues to do so. Wonderful. And then I know another thing that people are concerned about is, is the kind of building pile of compost under their sink mm-hmm. and textile uh, or recycling. So what's the what's the word on those uh, services that the Grow NYC markets provide? Yeah, so I'm happy to say they're back up and running. <laughs> so uh, both of those programs were impacted by the storm, but textile recycling is up and running on a regular schedule. So if you're used to bringing, you know, old pillowcases or old clothes or rags, what have you, to drop off to be recycled at our markets. You can keep doing that um, from now going forward. So that's all up and running fine. And then in terms of compost, uh, another program that was impacted by the hurricane, um, we are running on a very limited schedule. So um, I'm happy to say the Lower East Side Ecology Center is fine, and they're doing compost collection, food scrap collection, in our Madison Square Park uh, location. So they'll be there tomorrow and Saturday. Uh, And then on, let's see here, Saturday, I'm going to tick off the list of green markets that are collecting compost. It's Inwood in Manhattan, and then in Brooklyn, Brooklyn Borough Hall, Fort Greene, Grand Army Plaza, McCarran Park, Socrates, and Sunnyside. Those last two are in Queens. And then on Sunday, we'll also have compost collection at Jackson Heights. And can you explain a little bit why compost collection has been compromised? Uh, sure. I mean, our sites were, were sort of hit by the hurricane, so um, people are kind of having to, to rebuild okay. <laughs> is essentially what's been going on. And then uh, there's always been the question of vehicles and being able to get around and pick it up. Okay, so just an allocation of resources in addition to kind of doing some storm uh, rebuild. Exactly. Great. Well, I know folks um, are are still um, out there and looking for ways to contribute to the relief efforts that will be ongoing in the weeks and months to come, but also kind of looking for ways to get back in the swing of things. And um, do you guys have any events coming up or Thanksgiving is just around the corner? What should we be looking to green market for? Absolutely. Let's not forget that Thanksgiving is right around the corner and there's lots to be thankful for and lots of food to buy to start cooking. So um, 
Starting this weekend, we've got another apple pie cook-off in Greenpoint McCarran Park, and that is this Saturday, November 10th at 11 a.m. And if you're interested in bringing a pie to have the judges see if it passes muster, you can email Pam Boyle, who's our uh, events coordinator on the ground at that market. So her email address is pboyle at grownyc.org. And um, you can bring your pie at 11 a.m. to McCarran Park, and uh, the judges are going to do a little tasting, and then at about 11.30, all the customers who have gathered around can, can taste all the results for themselves. So that should be really fun. And then in the coming weeks, we're going to have our Thanksgiving recipe packets at Market Info Tents, and we'll also have a guide to turkeys, figuring out who you want to get your turkey from. And um, we will be carrying on as the city recovers. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. And if folks want to find out more and stay uh, in touch with what's happening, they can always visit you at www.grownyc.org or follow on Twitter. It's at NYC Green Markets. That's been another episode of the Grow NYC Market Update. Stay tuned next week to hear what's going on at the Grow NYC Markets here in New York City. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.